well, what does a spiritual church look like? What does a spiritual church look like? I think if you ask the uh, average Christian in Malaysia, they would probably say, uh, experience God's presence in the worship, by which they mean the music. Uh, a church where there are miracles, maybe miraculous healings. Uh, a church full of uh, spiritual gifts, which by which they probably mean uh, speaking in tongues or bringing a word from the Lord. Well, in these uh, chapters, we deal with the issue of what true spirituality looks like. And they are controversial chapters, of course. And we need to come to the scriptures with humility and study again carefully what they actually say. I think it's very important as we begin, we note how Paul starts off the chapter in chapter 12, verse 1. He says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. Now, if you look at the footnote there, you'll notice that it says that there's no word gifts in the Greek there. Uh, it literally says concerning the spirituals, and it could be talking about spiritual gifts or spiritual things or spiritual people. You've got to fill in the context. But I think perhaps it's best to say just concerning the spirituals. In other words, Paul's main concern in these chapters is what makes someone spiritual? What does a spiritual church look like? And that's why Paul begins the chapter the way that he does. And we're at point one, the truly spiritual person knows Christ as Lord. The truly spiritual person knows Christ as Lord. See, as Paul begins, he wants to make it perfectly clear that being spiritual has got absolutely nothing to do with gifts. You see, in Corinth, much like uh, many churches in KL today, uh, churches are obsessed with gifts. Uh, the Corinthian church had many gifts. They had, uh, they, they had uh, uh, eloquent wisdom uh, and, uh, and knowledge and revelations and they could speak in tongues. They had all these amazing gifts. But they were a divided church that was proud and, and arrogant and, and lacking in love. And it's interesting in chapter 3, verse 1, that Paul actually calls the church unspiritual despite all of their gifts. And so he says to them in verse 2, You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. And so what is the one test of what makes someone spiritual or not? Well, a spiritual person, of course, is someone who has the Holy Spirit inside of them. And the way that you know if someone has the Holy Spirit inside of them is their attitude to Jesus Christ. See, the spiritual person proclaims that Jesus Christ is Lord. Uh, of course, it's not just saying the words. Anyone can say the words. I just said the words. But you will only say the words and mean the words if the Holy Spirit is working in your life. And, and Paul puts this up front, I think, uh, because it is of fundamental importance to our understanding of gifts. Uh, it means that true spirituality has got absolutely nothing to do with gifts. Many churches think that it does. They think that if you have particular gifts or a particular experience, you must be a spiritual church. But we see here that the true test is, are they living with Jesus Christ as Lord? 
That's what matters. Well, point two, the truly spiritual person uses their gifts to build up the church. Verse four, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in all. Now, I want you to notice here that they're not just spirit, the gifts of the spirit here. These are the gifts of the triune God. The spirit is normally refers to the Holy Spirit. The Lord normally refers to Jesus Christ. And God, used here unqualified, usually means God the Father. And so the giving of gifts here is not the exclusive work of the Holy Spirit. It's the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all together who are involved in giving the gifts. Well, secondly, note that everyone is given different gifts in verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Now notice firstly that the list is not uh, exhaustive. There are other gifts that are mentioned in verse 27 and 28. They include helping and administration. Uh, secondly, notice that everyone is given gifts. Verse 7 says to each one and verse 11 says all are empowered uh, and uh, all are empowered and all are apportioned to each one individually. Notice thirdly, we're not all given the same gifts. We're given different gifts. Uh, and so, of course, it's a mistake then to, to elevate one gift, like speaking in tongues, as the, as the necessary gift that all Christians must possess, or the necessary mark that you've made it as a spirit-filled Christian. We're all given gifts, but we're not all given the same gifts. Fourthly, notice that the gifts are distributed according to God's grace. In other words, they're not something that you can boast about. They're not something that you can create for yourself. It's God who chooses what gifts you have. And we should give thanks to God for the gifts we have and stop being proud and jealous of the gifts that other people have. Fifthly, notice the purpose of the gifts. Uh, it's not so that we can show off how good we are at serving other people or to show off how spiritual we are. Verse 7 says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And so whatever gifts we have, our primary concern is to be what is best for our brothers and sisters. Uh, Paul's later going to explain that that means uh, edifying them, building them up, making them more like Christ. And so if I'm a truly spiritual person, I'm not going to be thinking, oh, look how, look how impressive I am because I've got this, this marvellous gift. Look at all these people crowding around me. I'll be thinking, what can I do to serve the church? How can I build up this person? How can I love them? Well, there's many gifts uh, uh, listed here. Perhaps we have questions about whether people have those gifts today. We'll come to that later on, I think. 
But there are many gifts, isn't it? And uh, gifts could, of course, include volunteering to be on some roster in church. We have, maybe you have got musical abilities, or you can teach children, or you, you're a friendly person. You can, you can welcome other people. But of course, there's so much more we could do. There's, uh, there's gifts of helping and serving and administering. We could visit the sick. We could pray for someone who's in trouble. We might have the gift of encouragement or the gift of cooking. There's a few who've got the gift of cooking or whatever it is. And notice it doesn't say you have to perfect your gift before you can start using it. Uh, it doesn't say you have to feel very confident before you start using the gift. The focus is not on me. The focus is on others. And so if it's going to benefit others, I'll do it. If it's not going to benefit them, you better not. And I'll do it, even if it's uncomfortable for me or difficult. Well, in the following verses, we see that God has deliberately given us different gifts to unite us together as one body in Christ. Uh, verses 12 to 13 remind us that Christians are a body, that we are, that we are interdependent on one another. Verse 13 says that we, uh, in one spirit we were all baptised into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Now this is a really important uh, verse because there are some churches that teach that you need, that you need to be baptised by the spirit and that this is something that happens to you much later after your conversion. It's, a, it's a, a baptism of the Spirit that then enables you to, to have certain spiritual gifts and to live a victorious Christian life, to overcome sin in your life, uh, and so on. Uh, usually this baptism of the Spirit, they say, is identified by speaking in tongues or by falling backwards or whatever it is. And the Alpha Course teaches this, of course, which is why we don't use it in SMAC. It's based on a wrong understanding of Spirit baptism and I think an obsession with experience and spiritual gifts. Now you read in verse 13, we've all been baptised by the Holy Spirit. It's not a special group of Christians that have been baptised. We've all been baptised in the Holy Spirit. And when did this happen? Well, verses 1 to 3 tell you. It happened at your conversion. Because otherwise you never would have proclaimed Jesus as your Lord. Well, we've all been baptised by the Holy Spirit or we're not Christians. We're all part of the same body. And Paul wants to draw out the implications of us being one body in the following verses, both in terms of diversity and unity. Now, any group will have insiders and outsiders to it. Uh, the insiders will like to, to dominate and uh, create their cliques. I hope there's not too many of those here. Uh, the outsiders will think to themselves, well, if I wasn't here, no one would probably notice. I hope that doesn't happen. I hope that's not you this morning. Well, first, Paul wants to address those who feel like outsiders in the church. See what he says to them in verse 14. The body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would, the sense of, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God has arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single body member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, 
yet one body. And so Paul reminds us that God has given us different gifts on purpose. He's deliberately made us unique and different, and that is a good thing. And I mean, just, just imagine for a moment that my entire body was just ears, right? Everything was just, you just replace the hand with an ear, a few ears, you know, replace the body with a few ears, legs with more ears. It would be a rather ugly sight, wouldn't it? Uh, or just imagine that your hand was now a foot, so you have three feet or four feet and no hands. That would be rather useless, wouldn't it? And yet we, always, we often long to be like other people, don't we? We wish we were on the music team. Or we feel useless because they've got that gift, but I don't have that gift. I've just got this lousy gift. Or so we think. But our value in the body of Christ has got nothing to do with what gifts we have. It's got nothing to do with what people think of us. And it's got nothing to do with what we think of ourselves. We all have gifts. We're all part of the body. And we're all important. And so we need to stop looking to our gifts to give us value uh, and instead look to Christ who really gives us our value and get on with using our gifts, whatever they are, in serving other people. Well, those are the outsiders. Now Paul addresses the insiders who think to themselves, well, I don't need those other people in the church anyway. Verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honourable, we bestow the greater honour. And our unpresentable parts are treated with the greatest mod greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, given greater honour to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honoured, all rejoice together. Uh, they say that you never realise uh, how important a part of your body is until you hurt it. We're told here God has given us different gifts, not so that we can boast about them to one another, but so that we can use them to love and care for each other. Uh, this last week I was away at the, the Next Gen Conference over in Port Dixon uh, th and there was another church that was uh, meeting for their church camp at the same time. And there was one person from that church who was blind and there was two or three that uh, seemed to have Down syndrome. And it was, really, it was really wonderful actually, it was really beautiful to see how that church was uh, caring for them and including them in each and every activity that they had. And, and that's God's design for church. God deliberately puts different people, more vulnerable people, maybe people who have less to contribute, and not just people who have everything to contribute, so that we would learn as a church to value people for who they are and use our gifts not for our self-advancement, but to really love people. And they were a wonderful example of it. But we notice as we get to the end of the chapter that there is such a thing as, as higher gifts. Uh, notice the order of the gifts that he, lead, he lists in verse 28. First are the apostles, second the prophets, 
third, the teachers. They're all the people who have uh, gifts to proclaim God's word. Then comes all the other gifts. And notice what the last one is. Speaking in tongues. I don't think that that's an accident. It's probably because the Corinthian church was so obsessed with it that Paul put it at the end. And notice the expectation is not that everyone will have every gift. Look at verse 29. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? And the answer we're meant to give to each of those questions is no. We don't all have those gifts. We have different gifts. And yet verse 31 also says, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. What are they? Well, I take it they're the ones that were in 1, 2, 3. They're the word, they're the word gifts. They're the gifts of teaching God's word to, one, to others because those are the, the gifts that enable the ministry of everyone else. But before we talk more about these higher gifts, Paul wants us to think a lot more about how we use our gifts, because otherwise we'll just be tended to, tending to pride and arrogance, just like the Corinthian church. Look how he ends the chapter. Earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you still a more excellent way. And the way he means is love, the way of chapter 13. Uh, we're at point three now. The truly spiritual person lives in love. And here we should notice the rather peculiar structure of these chapters. We've got chapter 12, we saw it's all about gifts. Chapter 14, we'll see in a moment, is all about uh, gifts as well, especially prophecy and speaking in tongues. And sandwiched in the middle is chapter 13, this chapter on love. And it's not that Paul thought to himself, look, I've got this wonderful poem uh, on love and uh, you know, we really need to get this into the New Testament somewhere so that people have something to read at their weddings. And uh, never mind, I'll just put it here. 13 is quite a nice number. No. By, by, by sandwiching this chapter in the middle, it's his way of saying that, that this is the key principle by which you're to understand everything on the outside. And here's the point, I guess. Love is far, far more valuable than any gift. Love is far more valuable than any gift. In fact, gifts are useless without love. Look at chapter 13, verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, Paul's uh, intention here is not to say, look, that speaking in tongues is a heavenly language or that Christians can do miracles like moving mountains if they have enough faith. It's very obvious, isn't it? He's picking extreme examples here to say, look, even if you had this extreme example, that if, the, if there was an angelic language and you could speak it, or if you had faith that really could move mountains and you had it, or you could deliver up your body to be burned and you would actually do it. He's picking these extreme examples. And then he says, well, all of that, without love, we are nothing. We are useless. 
we gain nothing. Without love, even the greatest gift benefits no one. And so Paul goes on to describe the nature of love in verses 4 to 7. And uh, of course you can apply it more generally, uh, but what he has particularly in mind here is what we do with our gifts. He says, love is patient and kind. See, just because I have a gift doesn't mean that I need to use it right now. I'm patient. I use it when it's helpful, out of kindness, not because... I want to do something for myself. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. So I don't get proud because I have a gift or jealous because someone else has a gift that I think is better. Verse 5, it does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. So what should matter is not what is best for me, but what is best for you. And so I don't get irritable when things don't go my way, if it's for your benefit. Verse 6, it doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So the loving person is filled with faith and hope and truth and perseverance. Now notice here, Jesus, Jesus didn't say in John's Gospel, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, when you speak in tongues and do miraculous healings. He didn't say that, did he? He said, by this will all men know that you are my disciples, by your love for one another. The mark of the spiritual person is a life of love. Anyone can wear a cross. Anyone can boast about a spiritual gift. But the truly spiritual person is the one who lives in self-sacrificial, other person-centered Love. We might summarize it this way. The unspiritual person says, I love using my gifts. The spiritual person says, I use my gifts to love. And those two sentences couldn't be more different, could they? The unspiritual person is focused on themselves. The spiritual person is focused on others. Or perhaps to put it another way, the fruit of the Spirit is far more important than the gifts of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is more important than the gifts of the Spirit. The spiritual person will live a life of love. And love is better than gifts because love lasts. Look at verse 8. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. The purpose of gifts like tongues and prophecy is to edify the church so that we grow more like Christ. But once we reach heaven, we don't need edification anymore. We'll already be transformed. We'll know God perfectly. We'll be just like Christ in every way. And so Paul's point in, in verses 10 and 11, really, to the Corinthians is grow up. Stop acting like children. Focus on what really matters, not your gifts, but on faith and hope and, and especially love. Because those are the things that will endure. Those are the things that will remain for all eternity. In eternity, you're never going to stop loving God or trusting God or putting your hope in God. We'll continue doing that forever and ever and ever. And so if that's what eternity is going to be like, how much more should we love God? 
Now, love is more important than gifts. So it might be worth pausing just for a moment this morning and ask ourselves, are we living in love? What's your attitude to your gifts and to your church? Is it all about you or is it all about others? My guess is that for perhaps a few of us this morning, a radical shift in our mindset is required, perhaps from sitting to, to serving. Uh, we could think about our church attendance. Why are you here this morning? I mean, you could have played the songs on Spotify. You could have downloaded the sermon from the SMAC website. You could have prayed by yourself. Maybe you could use Prayer Mate for that. So why are you here? Why don't you just go down to the mama? Be more comfortable with a cup of teetari, isn't it? The glass probably won't leak. Well, hopefully we're not here for some kind of selfish reason. Uh, you know, getting a boyfriend or girlfriend or something like that. The reason we go to church is because we love and serve one another, isn't it? We want to help each other grow. And, and that's why we come to church. You can't do that by yourself at home, can you? And so if coming to church is about serving other people, then I'm not going to skip church when I'm tired or when I've got an assignment due the next day. I think there is exams tomorrow, isn't it? I want to be there to, to welcome the newcomer and to pray for the person who's struggling and to encourage my brother and sister. And if coming to church is about serving, then I'll volunteer to do things that will help others, like going to Cheshire Home or uh, sitting with the people or teaching Sunday school, even if maybe they're things that I'm not particularly comfortable with because I love other people more than I love myself. And that will be an amazing work of the Spirit, isn't it? That will be a miraculous transformation, I think, as people no longer live for themselves but live for others. Truly spiritual people are those who live in love. Well, with that principle in mind, now we're ready to look at the higher gifts. And we're at point four. The truly spiritual person will desire to prophesy Paul writes in chapter 14 and verse 1, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Now what is prophecy? That's a difficult question actually. In the Old Testament, prophecy is basically about speaking God's words. And in Acts chapter 2, we're told that all Christians now prophesy. Uh, in Revelation chapter 19, verse 10, we're given a definition of prophecy by Jesus. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So prophecy, it would seem, is when we speak God's word about his son, his death for our sins, his, his resurrection as, as our Lord, his return as our judge. I don't mean speaking things that are apart from Scripture. Uh, we know about Jesus' death and his resurrection and his return as judge and how we should live as God's people. It's, it's all here in Scripture, but we talk about it, isn't it? What's it going to look like in our lives? All Christians prophesy. All Christians can prophesy about the future too, can't they? Jesus is coming back. There'll be a judgment day. That's about the future. But it's in Scripture. 
So Christians should desire to prophesy, to speak God's word. And Paul's first point here is that prophecy is greater than tongues. Look at verse 2. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding, encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Now I find it bizarre as people read these uh, verses that they then say that it's all about speaking in tongues, when that's the exact opposite of his point. Now what, are, what is speaking in tongues? That's also a difficult question. He doesn't define it here for us, does he? The word tongue, of course, is just a, a way of saying a language. And the only place speaking in tongues is described as an activity is in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. And there it's very clear that the apostles are speaking known languages, real languages that people can understand. It, it was miraculous. They, they were speaking languages that they didn't learn, but they were still real languages. And I think that should perhaps cast a bit of doubt in our minds on what uh, many people will call speaking in tongues today. It sounds more like babble than anything else to me, certainly not a real language. Perhaps it's nothing like what the Bible is actually talking about. Well, Paul argues here that prophecy is greater than tongues in the church. Why is that? It's not because there's anything wrong with speaking in tongues. After all, it's a spiritual gift. The problem is that no one can understand it. And if people can't understand it, they can't be built up, can they? Prophecy is better because, it, the, because prophecy can be understood. As we, as we talk to one another about God's word in an intelligible way, we can know God better and we can be encouraged to live it out. If I don't understand anything that's going on, how am I going to change? And so to use this passage, as some do, to argue that we should be focusing more on speaking in tongues, I think is to take it immediate, entirely from its context. He's trying to convince us to prophesy, because prophesy builds up, prophecy builds up. In fact, he goes on to explain that untranslated tongues are of no benefit in the church. Untranslated tongues are of no benefit in the church. Look at verse 6. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? Then, For, for you'll be speaking into the air. Now just imagine at this point in the sermon uh, that I decided to start preaching in Korean. Now I can't speak Korean, so I won't do that. But I wonder if you would find it particularly edifying when I start preaching to you in Korean. Is it going to build up your trust in Jesus as you see me doing that? I suspect you'll be bored. Uh, perhaps you'll be admiring my Korean. <laughs> but more likely you'll despise me for showing off. And it certainly wouldn't benefit you in any way. 
And what effect would that be as the, as the outsider comes in and, and they, they don't know what's going on? Here's all these people that don't know Korean and they're just listening to Korean. I think, what on earth is this bunch of people doing? Are they crazy? Uh, he goes on in this passage, verse 10. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, or tongues, and none is without meaning, but I didn't, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I'll be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. In other words, tongue speaking in the gathered congregation does not meet the criteria of love. Tongue speaking is not loving to my, to my neighbor, if they can't understand it. And that, of course, is why we don't speak in tongues at SMAC, in service. And that is, of course, why at our annual uh, combined service, that we make sure everything is translated into a language that people can understand. Because we want to make sure that everyone can understand whether they speak Mandarin or Nepali or Iban or whatever it is. Because we want everyone to be edified and that is loving. I mean, just imagine that our Nepali brothers turned up to our annual combined service and the whole thing was in English and Malay and they couldn't understand a word of what was going on. Wouldn't be particularly encouraging for them, would it? And so if a church thinks that, that, that uh, speaking together in untranslated tongues all at the same time is spiritual and honoring God, even though no one understands a word of what is being said, They've not read this passage, or worse, they're ignoring this passage. It's not loving, and it's not helpful. True spirituality involves the mind, and not just mere emotion. Paul continues on in verse 13. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I'll pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my mind. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in, in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? You may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person's not being built up. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I read that twice, didn't I? I guess God wanted uh, us to hear it twice. Never mind. <laughs> so Paul is saying that communication requires intelligibility. I can't be built up unless I understand what is being said. So, so tongue speaking is fine so long as someone translates it and then it's just prophecy. Verse 19 says, five words of prophecy is better than 10,000 words in a tongue. We might ask, why do so many, so many churches blatantly ignore these verses? It's disobedient, isn't it? Perhaps it just puffs up the pride. Again, Paul wants us to grow up. He says in verse 20, Don't be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil in your thinking. Be mature. Don't think you're so spiritual because you can speak in tongues. In fact, as he goes on, he says, Remember the Old Testament. 
tongues are actually a sign of judgment. Remember what happened at the Tower of Babel. Why are there so many languages? It's God's judgment, isn't it? Remember the exile. If you're in a foreign nation where you, you, hear, you, you know, you're, you're in Malaysia and you hear everyone speaking Japanese, what does that mean? You're a conquered people under God's judgment. Tongues are a sign of judgment, not salvation. Verse 23, if therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your mind? They'll conclude that, that they, they won't conclude that you're so spiritual, they conclude that you're crazy. And they'll be hardened in their unbelief. And they'll be judged. Verse 24, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. So, that, so the newcomer comes in and they hear the word of God spoken plainly. They're convicted of their sin, their need for Jesus, his lordship in their life. They become Christians. You see, the truly spiritual person will desire prophecy, that is, speaking scripture-inspired words about Jesus, rather than speaking in tongues in the gathered church. Well, finally, point five, the truly spiritual person maintains order in the church. How do we work out what we do at church and what we don't do it, church. There's all kinds of things we could do here, isn't it? I mean, we could have a, uh, we could get out a giant water slide, maybe, and uh, you know, we could all take it in turns before and after the sermon. That would be interesting, wouldn't it? Uh, how do you decide what we do and what we don't do at church? Well, verse 26 says that it is the principle of edification. What then, brothers, when you come together, each has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, an, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. So whatever builds up the church, that's what we should do. We don't do it just because I have a gift that I think I must use. Well, what does that mean for tongues? There's uh, four principles in verses 27 and 28. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the, let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. You can all prophesy one by one, so that they may all learn and all be encouraged, and the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets, for God is not a God of confusion." but of peace. So you see the limits, it's two or max three. I wonder if you've ever been to a translated sermon where it's been translated into three languages. I mean, that's very painfully slow, isn't it? This sermon would be three hours by then. Then there's the order, it's each in turn, it's not all at the same time. Not even three at the same time. There has to be someone in, to interpret and they need to know that there's someone to interpret before they start. And if there's no one to interpret, they remain silent. And it's the same with prophecy, the same thing. Not everyone talking at the same time, but one after another, in turn. Two or three, max. Uh, verses 33 to 35 say that what we do in church shouldn't overthrow what happens in the home. So as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. They're not permitted to speak. 
should be in submission as the law says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. It's shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, that doesn't mean that women are not able to say anything at all uh, in church. So, you, you know, don't sing during the songs and don't pray, don't say amen in the prayers, right? That's not what he means. He means here that they should clearly be in submission, not teaching and not putting themselves above men or contradicting the men who are in public leadership. They listen, they weigh, they ask their husbands at home. And Paul ends the chapter by reminding us that these teachings are not optional. These are a command of the Lord. Look at verse 36. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Are you the only ones that it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Well, in conclusion, what does a spiritual church look like? Well, it's not the church where everyone has their gifts showing off proudly what they can do. The spiritual church will be the church that is filled with people who live with Jesus as their Lord, who live a life of love and therefore use their gifts to build up and serve other Christians, who eagerly desire to speak God's word to one another and maintain the order God has established in the gathered assembly. I wonder if that is you this morning. Are you a truly spiritual person? And is this a truly spiritual church? We may need to reflect very carefully on these things. And uh, some of us might need to make some very serious changes in our Christian life. Make sure that you do it. The Spirit equips, and may He indeed equip us to glorify the Lord Jesus as we love and serve one another. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have you've brought us all together into one family, one body. We're, we're so diverse. We're from so many different backgrounds and nations and ages and genders. And, and yet you have, you have made us one. You've brought us together. We are dependent on each other. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the way that you have made each of us individually the gifts and the opportunities you have given us. We thank you that some have, have more gifts and some have less, but that every gift is important. Father, we pray that you'd help us to value and see things in your, in your ways and not in our own, to value every person for who they are and to love as you have loved us. We pray that you would help us to see what true spirituality is really about so that we are not distracted from, what from the things that uh, many worldly churches would, would argue is truly spiritual. And Lord, we uh, thank you for the way that many of these things that uh, are being expressed correctly, even in this congregation, 
and even in uh, one another. Continue to equip us and empower us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.